0: And good morning, Gary.
1: And good evening, Jonathan.
0: How are you in sunny Chicago today?
1: Well, Chicago actually is sunny today. I want you to know that for (laughs) the first time since our blizzard a week and a half ago, tomorrow the temperature will actually be above freezing.
0: Ooh, does that mean ice is melting and snow is disappearing?
1: Well, the the snow will turn into six-inch puddles of dirty slush, and you won't be able to cross the street. as. As long as the snow stays frozen, you can get around fine. It's when it starts melting that it's going to be a nightmare.
0: Ah. So does this mean that uh, now that the weather is turning mildly warmer, you leave your secret science fiction bunker and uh, go out into the streets of Chicago again?
1: Yes, we have to actually face reality again. (laughs) Uh, It's terrible.
0: (laughs) Is that the joy of a northern winter you can hide from reality for a few months?
1: I think I, – I, I don't know if I could demonstrate this at all, that people who live in northern climates or cold climates read more or grow up reading more or learn to read more because what else are you
0: going to do? No, no, I totally believe it. One of the weird things is before circumstance drove me to have to try and do it all the time, I honestly read in winter. Mm-hmm. I'm not even beginning to kid you. It would be um, oh well, it's a bright sunny day. I have to go out and do this. I have to go do that. And here it's a bright sunny day for eight months of the year, right? So um, it would only be when I would look outside and you go, look, it's 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 cold by our standards and it's raining, and so mm-hmm. I shall I shall sit inside and read a book, you know, because otherwise, I mean, particularly when I was growing up, it would only be late at night. I would I would only start reading at ten o'clock at night or anything. I would never read during the day because there's, mm-hmm. there's just stuff to be doing, you know. So ah uh, well sure. So, so you've been stuck inside in your icy f- northern fortress. Um, mm-hmm. Have you been reading science fiction, Gary? I've been reading some science fiction.
1: Been, well, this is one of the things that always makes me read science fiction. <laughs> is the awareness that there's a deadline ten days away, <laughs> um, and, uh, and 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 not only that, but we're moving into a much more interesting season of science fiction mm-hmm. in the next two or three okay, months. On. There, uh, we're, we're going to get a lot of interesting things, uh, which I have, which I have, and I haven't scheduled for, to read for review yet because uh the may books may books i guess include what the new uh the swanwick novel yeah, the new, one, the new yeah. china china, china me novel um there's um uh, one of the things what is this book i've got the collected stories of carol m Schuller, yeah. which is an april book yeah uh, and that made me think of something which i hadn't thought of she's yeah. one of these people who um and you and i have talked before when we were sure. trying to think of of really aging masters of the field and the same names came up. I mean, the same, Jack Vance comes up, Fred yeah. Pohl comes up. Carol Imtshuler is going to turn 90 in April. When That's this remarkable. Book
0: comes that is remarkable. And
1: and, and, and she's still very active. If anything, writing stories as interesting as anything she's ever written.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think what, I think the reason she doesn't come to mind immediately is that she only really started writing novels, what, 12 or 13 years ago.
0: Something like that. I mean, I was going to say, wasn't there, and I mean, I don't remember this. I would have to look it up. I'm not going to pretend. Wasn't there like a, a lengthy hiatus in her career where she really was busy doing other things or whatever, and then she really came back to prominence maybe in her mid-70s, something like that?
1: Isn't that um, it? she had a She had a bad period. We interviewed her for uh, for Locus, and I don't remember whether that interview interviews appeared yet she had she had a difficult time after ed died after yeah, her husband course. um and he had gotten her into this field i mean she, she's had a fascinating life they were involved with the art scene in new york mm. obviously they were involved in the experimental film scene when it was still really experimental in the early 60s yeah. um uh, and 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 then she spent a lot of time kind of i guess raising horses and things like that um mm-hmm. uh, and and then was more or less rediscovered. But what fascinates me is not just that her stories, let's see in this collection, go back to, um, I'm looking at the very first story here in 1954. Um, Mm -hmm. now that's a, that's a career of, of 55 years. And, and it's not, I'm not only thinking about the fact that she was writing stories, which I might've read some of these when I was a kid, but I probably, I certainly don't remember if I did. Um, it's not just that she was writing interesting stories that had female characters in her. All of her stories are about marriages or families or mothers. Sure. At a time when, um, you know, in, in future science fiction or science fiction adventures almost had no women characters at all, let alone marriages, let alone families in them. Yeah. She She was writing about this, and to be honest, her stories are as good as some of the ones that everybody remembers as the early stories about families in science fiction like Judith Miller's
0: of course story, yeah uh, yeah
1: that only a mother which I think is about 1950 yeah and the other thing that makes me th- makes me think is that most of these things what I'm thinking is uh, there there's a kind of lost period in science fiction history which most of us know very little about and that's mm-hmm. the period of the very early 50s in terms of short stories because I mean Carol was re- selling stories and you could see she was selling stories she got into the field uh, because all of ed's friends were in the field she didn't know anything sure. about science fiction but ed was you know a, a big shot um, so she started writing stories there there were other interesting people at the period i mean but budrus was publishing stories we think of the early 50s as we've talked before as being kind of a classic beginning of career period mm, for I guess we do, people yeah. like sheckley phil sure, Dick, and so, sure. on, and so on but what you don't see much are all these uh, this this period when the pulps were dying and the magazine digests were just blo- booming, they were blossoming. Yeah, uh, hundreds and hundreds of stories. Now, since then, in the anthology market, I guess I was I started thinking about this also when we were talking about the Wesleyan Anthology of Science Fiction. Yeah. the anthology, the early anthologies, the 1950s anthologies. If you look at them, just mind astounding for all it was worth. Absolutely. Uh, and I I, I I one time I wanted to actually do this, and maybe somebody has done it to figure out. The period of astounding, uh, let's say between 1937, the beginning of Campbell's editorship, and 1950 or so, uh, the beginning of Campbell's loony period. Uh, <laughs> yeah. How? What proportion of stories from that in 13 or 14 year run actually uh, became anthologized, became kind of uh, canonized by Groff Conklin and, and, and August Dirlith and, and people like that? I'm guessing that that 13 run of 13 year run of fiction magazines has the highest proportion of anthologized stories of any period in the history of science fiction
0: it's an interesting proposition i'm not sure it's i don't know i'd be curious to see someone do the actual research because whenever i've spoken to anybody who's gone back and read the pulps and by saying that i immediately foreshadow the fact that i have not done so what i hear always is that every single good story has already been reprinted pretty much and what there is left is Drek. um and what I wonder, even with this period, is whether we've seen, you know, sort of the, the best of the best widely reprinted. Everything else is nonsense. But I just wonder if it's an impression that that it's more that's been picked up from this period than elsewhere. Um, I mean, what it may give you the impression, rather than the, a greater proportion of stories being anthologized, is actually, oddly, a greater proportion of stories being repeatedly re-anthologized. Yes. So well, it's the same well, stories. I mean, I realize that's perhaps... Um, it's splitting hairs, but it's a, to some degree it's a hair worth splitting if only because if it's not that that period of, of short fiction was particularly uh, exemplary or outstanding, even though there's some very fine work published. It's just that that it was the, some of the most interesting stuff, and that stuff's been reprinted again and again and again. You know.
1: Well, I think that's true of the pulps in general. Uh, yeah. I, I think Astounding was a little bit different because uh, it was – Most a good proportion of the best science fiction being written for that period, but this period when the pulps were in decline and before the market collapsed was just uh, there were probably more science fiction markets in the early 50s than ever. And I looked this up in a a book which I have, which I don't, you can probably still find it, um, that uh, Marshall Tim and Mike Ashley did years ago called Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Weird Fiction Magazines. It's a very complete bibliography of of hundreds of magazines with publication dates, launch dates. Do you know how many science fiction and fantasy fiction magazines were launched between the beginning of 1950 and the end of 1953?
0: I'm going to guess 15. 50. 50. 50. Oh, my gosh. And, of course, they're all done for that weird sort of reason where we're, we're printing 75 million magazines at once and we've got an empty spot... On the, on the color plate, so we're going to have to print a cover anyway, so you might as well do a magazine to fill it. Mm-hmm.
1: And you're, and the magazines were being distributed in every newsstand, uh, you know, in every major city and small cities. They were in bus depots. The distribution was phenomenal before that famous collapse occurred in the late 50s. Yeah. Uh, but what it, what it occurs to me is that, yeah, Le- Philip K. Dick was publishing stories there and Budrus and Sheckley. And, and those are the ones that get anthologized in individual author collections and, and some best of the year collections. But... I'm wondering if somebody doing the very earliest best-of-the-year anthologies in the early yeah. 50s, Judith Merrill and Blyler and, sure. uh, and Ditty, did they have – they probably have more bad stories to choose from than you do doing a year's best. But did they actually have more stories to choose from? You're talking oh, about
0: oh, that's a big call, Gary. There's an awful lot I... of bad stories out there.
1: Well, that's true too. And they didn't have <laughs> online venues. And oh, no. it's very possible. It's very possible that things like uh, super science stories or, or future science fiction. Actually, future wasn't bad because I used to read that occasionally. It's possible that they were the you know, early 50s e- equivalent of self-publishing online because if you were an active writer and if you could target. A story uh, that was exactly the right length at a hole in the magazine the editor would say sure you know we don't care much <laughs> I, I i used to talk to budris about this uh, yeah. because he edited some of these things and he said yeah you know if they had a five thousand hole uh five thousand word hole in the magazine the next five and then you're they're up against deadline guess what the next five thousand word story that shows up gets published <laughs>
0: The you know the the rigors of commercial publishing. I mean, you do you hear people like well you you talk to AJI. I've to talked to Bob a little bit, uh, Bob Silverberg a little bit about some of these, um, the you know, demands of, of of the pulp era, and they they were pretty laissez-faire about quality. And yeah, you get the feeling these days that I wouldn't just say online, but that there are a whole pl- bunch of places that are somewhat laissez-faire about quality, um, which of course makes you pretty skeptical about what they're doing as well. You know, so.
1: Well, the thing looking at the Carol Imshwolder stories makes me wonder what the anthologists were doing, because you're right. Uh, a, a story becomes canonized through repeated antholo- anthologists – okay, antholo – Being anthologized repeatedly? Is. Being anthologized repeatedly, exactly. <laughs>
0: um,
1: and and the editors of anthologies – and I know I, I, I've never met uh, Groff Conklin, but he was certainly one of the people who defined what the field looked like anthology-wise sure. Sure. back in the 50s um, – they probably were as biased in their own way and as uh, sort of uh, narrowly focused on certain kinds of science fiction as the magazine editors were. And the reason I mention that is because some of these early Carol Imprilish stories, some of them are not distinguished as stories, but in terms of the way they deal with women's points of view, there's some stylistic stuff uh, from 1955 fantasy and science fiction uh, that, that would hold up very well today. I don't think those stories would have drawn the attention of the anthologists who were probably thinking we're selling these anthologies to sure. young boys sure. and we're not going to publish any stories about girls in them
0: oh, and probably i mean i haven't read this particular group of stories but i'm guessing they're not spaceship adventures or that kind of thing particularly and that would also have been the kind of thing they were looking for uh in the first blush at least and it would be very easy to sort of have you know once you've gone through a, uh, a couple issues of a magazine and, and pulled out a couple of stories you let the rest in your mind fall into the background it's only when you go come back again and again what I was well,
1: yeah. Go ahead, I'm sorry. I'm
0: no, what I was just sure. saying. Well, the thought that applies to Carol Emshwiller as well is that I tend to think of her more as having a body of work than having a particular story that stands out. I can't think of the great Carol Emshwiller story. Mm-hmm. They, they tend to sit in your mind as a group, you know, and I wonder if that's some characteristic of her work that has also worked against her being widely, repeatedly anthologized.
1: That possibly in the fact that she tended to write fairly short stories, which Mm. uh, which are more easily forgettable. But uh, one of the things that she uh, comes up with, uh, oh, there are several robot housewife stories or robot. But uh, the kind of issue that and this could be my context, knowing Carol Impswiller's body of work. And looking at these early stories, I think, wait a minute, she was doing stuff in 1954 and 1955 that other people are only doing now. There's a story yeah. in here which is a, a story from 1954, is essentially the Stepford Wives, yeah. um, which became, you know, a, a major bestseller. Yeah. There is uh, there's a story which is in in, in, in its basic linaments very much like uh, uh, that classic uh, Rachel Sorsky, what is now I think a, a new classic story, Rachel Sorsky story, Eros uh, Agape. What's the third Greek word?
0: Erosphilia agape. Yes, right.
1: thank you. Um, and, and so it's not that Impshuler was writing her best stories early in her career, but she was writing about things that now looking back at it, knowing that there is a feminist history of science fiction, I'm thinking, did people, did people really see these stories that way at the time? Am I seeing this, these stories that way now because I know who Carol Impshuler is? Or was she actually doing something that was very subversive in these forgotten magazines in the early 50s?
0: I suspect she was being very in fact I suspected some range of all of that you know I suspect she was doing something very subversive and I also su- suspect that you know these were the women's stories that you know sort of men didn't see you didn't sort of pay that much attention to them and even if you're sort of a particular group of people with as a within the science fiction community did and I'm sure if you were to talk to the Bob Silverbergs of the world they would remember with great clarity uh, those stories be coming out uh, I bet that in the wider science fiction community they weren't weren't noticed or discussed or whatever else because you know if you look at the peer at the time they were focusing on other values in stories you know
1: yeah and i and i suspect there was a sense also at the time and and actually carol kind of reinforced this that uh, she got into the publishing of fiction. I mean, she was a a, a very bright, creative, but literary writer yeah. who got into the science fiction magazines because she was Ed's wife, and she was apparently one of the most gorgeous figures in science fiction in the early 50s. So she was part of the community, and she was uh, uh, maybe maybe given a pass. Maybe she was allowed to write more literary stories. Um, I mean, for one thing, it's becoming apparent that if if she had a story in a magazine that magazine could get an inch cover
0: yeah very much which yeah. is a bit
1: which is a big deal um, so there's a there, there's a sense in which she's uh, uh, writing you know 50 years ago writing stories which although they met the demands of what was then the digest market it's it, it, basically it's still a pulp market but they weren't pulp magazines she was fitting into that template but she was still writing carol imsville fiction and there were other writers who've almost been forgotten uh margaret st clara was one mm-hmm. yeah. um, um um i'm forgetting um Mar- idris sebright that was not a real name um she wrote under two names. Okay. And uh, but uh, and, and and fantasy and science fiction, uh, to their credit, to Boucher's credit, and and, and later Mills and the others, mm-hmm. seemed to be much more open to writing uh, to to publishing stories like that than than the other magazines. But all of them would publish them. Okay. Um, and and Ibsruller's output in the early fifties, I suspect, in terms of. Uh, The number of stories at least matches that of of Judith Merrill's number of stories.
0: Oh, I'm sure. And just quickly, Idris Seabright was Margaret Sinclair.
1: Okay, so that was the other name she wrote under.
0: And she also wrote as Wilton Hazard.
1: Okay, that I didn't know.
0: (laughs) What a great name. Mm -hmm. So here's here's a question, and it is relevant. Have you read all the way to the end of the collected stories?
1: No. There are something like 88 stories in this. When it comes out, it's going to be one of the most complete portraits of a career that we will have seen. But no, I've not read the more... I mean, I've read her more recent stories sure. uh, in some of her more recent collections, but not... Uh, I've never read through all this uh, the way. But what, what's your question?
0: Well, I guess my question is that if... Okay, I've read two or three of her novels. I've read a bunch mm-hmm. of the older collections. And I've probably read most of the recent stories. I mean, one or two will have fallen in, in, in between the gaps that happens. But mm-hmm. yeah. You know, but if you're... Okay, let's say that you're one of our friends over at Galactic Suburbia, and you're reading the history of feminist science fiction, and you're interested in both people who had early careers and people who are working today and still doing important you know, work. Where should someone like that, who's not familiar with uh, M. Schwiller's work, start reading her? Is it with this book, or is that too much? Would it be better to go back to one of the earlier collections, one of the novels, you know, that sort of thing?
1: Yeah, I would I would imagine one of the more recent collections that is a little bit more selective than this. I mean this is really for somebody who's seriously interested in her work. But uh, I don't necessarily think I would do the novels because uh, the novels really started more or less after she'd reinvented herself. I mean she's mm. somebody – she's one of the few people who I can think of that um, – Began really at the tail end of the pulp era and was able to write for those markets and survived into what we might think of as the Kelly Link era and could fit yeah, into those markets as very well. Very much, yeah. Um, did,
0: did you read uh, Mr. Boots, her YA novel?
1: I did read Mr. Boots, as a matter of fact. And Which I thought I was, was really
0: good. I really liked it a lot. I,
1: I was really charmed by it. And uh, the, the other thing that she's done, that in Carmen Dog, the earlier one… Um, which is a, another issue that at least in the academic circles about science fiction has become very hot animal stories, animal studies of various mm-hmm. kinds, um, which it's, and it's, it's showing up with the beastly bride and these anthologies mm-hmm. that are coming out as well. So, so yeah, she was kind of in the forefront of that. Uh, and, and some of the stories about uh, her, her treatment of aliens, uh, again, there are stories in this that look, uh, if, if, if you, you can look at, had, had she written this, uh, I can't remember the title of the exact story I'm thinking, of, but had she written it, 30 years later, it would have been a tip-tree story. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it's it's very much like the women men don't see.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, okay.
1: So, so, so yeah, she's fascinating. And, and, and it's, it, as I say, it, it it raises the other issue, which uh, is an interesting question today as well, because we've talked about this in relationship with Ted Chang, and that is making a reputation based entirely on short fiction. Yes. Um, uh, and, you know, Harlan was able to do that because he was Harlan. He was... The most colorful figure in the field for decades, and whatever th- people think about his attitudes or his behavior, sure. he was a he was a very colorful figure, and he wrote very very dramatic stories which mm. uh, which made changes. Um, other people I don't know. I mean, it, it, it occurs to me that um, Richard Matheson, uh, who's mostly known as a novelist, but Matheson, I'm not sure he's I don't think he's ever written a science fiction novel. Unless you count *The Shrinking Man* or *I Am Legend* at yeah. the very beginning of his career, but you know his impact on the field was largely that of a short story writer. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: And uh, we, we were—he was—I uh, I may have mentioned this. I was—I—I I, I don't know if this review is out. I never never keep track of, but his new novel, which is fascinating, it's another supernatural novel. Yes. But it did occur to me that he was inducted into the Science Fiction Hall of Fame last year, and. I have ambivalent feelings about uh, <laughs> the way people get inducted yes. into the Science Fiction Hall of Fame, and we can talk <laughs> about that. Okay. <laughs> but there is, a, there, there is a sense, okay, we have to recognize media people. So Douglas Trumbull, you sure. know, the special effects guy, was, was inducted as well. And you want to see them get recognized. But the fact is that maybe they were right about Matheson because what Matheson really did was he influenced yeah. a whole he influenced Rod Serling was one of the things he did he was one of the you know writers that was yeah. uh, uh, did classic episodes of the Twilight Zone and uh, and and wrote classic sort of uh, horror movies and so forth so he had a and 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 what three or four of his novels have been made into films yeah. So maybe uh, maybe he deserved to be in the Hall of Fame simply because he did help bring a new dimension of science fiction storytelling to television, and, and, well, television in particular.
0: Yeah. So tell me, Gary, since you've brought it up, what do you think of the process by which they get people into the Science Fiction Hall of Fame?
1: Well, the first thing I can <laughs> say about it is I have no idea whatsoever what that process is. Okay, good. <laughs> I've, I've, tried, I've, I've tried to find out. Uh I, I know there is a committee. I know some of the people that are on the committee who are very nice people. Um I also know that this is a museum which is trying to survive uh basically on admissions these mm-hmm. days. Yeah. And, and and therefore that there's a there's a necessity in the museum itself to address the huge audience yeah. that's represented by close encounters and Star Wars sure, of and so forth and so on. Yep. And I, I will say this having been to the museum a few times I'm impressed at the amount of literature that is represented there. Yeah. Uh, okay. That it's not entire But in terms of the Hall of Fame, uh, I cannot figure out the principle that's working here <laughs> at all.
0: Yes, yeah, so I've got a bit. I haven't gone looking through the list to see if there's anyone that I think doesn't belong, because that's always my own personal test with the, these things. You know, you look down mm-hmm. something like the SFWA Grand Masters list or the uh, World Fantasy Lifetime Achievement list, which are probably yeah, you know, the most comparable, uh, particularly since I don't care what they say. I've never bought that the uh, WorldCon kind of Guest of Honor is the same as a Lifetime Achievement Award. Right. Um, and when I look at those, every now and again, you you do look at someone and go, "Really? They made it, and so and so didn't." You
1: oh, know? you could do that easily. I mean, last year the issue was because uh, the, the there's a group of Philip Jose Farmer fans that joined the uh, Hall of Fame weekend to have their yep. they, they used to they used to have this little little convention in Peoria with, at Phil and Betty's house, actually. Mm-hmm. And and when Phil and Betty died, uh, they wanted to continue having conventions. They went there. Well, they raised the issue uh, of why shouldn't Philip Jose Farmer be in the Hall of Fame? And I can think of all kinds of reasons why he hasn't made it yet, uh, because they seem to have a quota system. They have to have media people. They have to have, I think there's at least one or two media people and at least one person and half are dead and half are alive, something mm-hmm. like that. But when you look at, OK, let's say Douglas Trumbull, yeah. who... Basically, designed some brilliant special effects. Yes. Edit uh, directed one, I think, really dumb science fiction movie <laughs> called Silent, Run- Silent Running, yep. uh, which looked great but was idiotic. Uh, does he really belong in there rather than Philip Jose Farmer?
0: <laughs> I I guess the answer to that from the Hall of Fame people would be it's not an either or uh, equation. Because you're right. On one hand, I mean, Phil Farmer's contribution to science fiction, at least with you know as we understand it, is much greater than Doug Trumbull's. Even though, and this is your, this is your counterbalance. I'm playing devil's advocate. Mm. Even though the iconography that Trumbull helped portray was vastly influential, culture, mm-hmm. and that's something. I mean, like this ties into this radio interview I have to do on Monday, uh, where you start talking about the influence of science fiction on the rest of the world and everything else. Um, it's the way that these filmmakers took the iconography that was evolved in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and took it to the world at large in the 60s, 70s, 80s. That that you know spread out enormously and in, in, impacted the science fiction in weird ways that I don't think we even have completely process now. Truth.
1: I think that's I think that's true, and this, this relates to the conversation we had I think last week or week before about how how much more leeway you give to science fiction, which sure, is sure. Yeah. Uh, Media science fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, There, there – I mean one of the things that uh, – uh, I don't know if – I don't have a list in front of me of who's in the science fiction hall of fame or right not. But let's say – let's take Ridley Scott yeah. uh, as an example. I mean there's, certainly um, Blade Runner and – well, the Alien movies as well. But Blade Runner in terms of the way people thought about the future yeah. is one of the few films which I believe actually you know influenced writers yeah. uh, in, in terms of visualizing the future. And yet here's the other issue when you're dealing <laughs> with films. How much of that is Ridley Scott and how much, I think Sid Mead was the production designer on that. Sure, sure. And I remember actually there was a museum exhibit um, – I think at the museum of science and industry here – years ago of Sid Mead's production designs for films. Yeah. Um, or to go in an earlier generation, uh, William Cameron Menzies who did all the set designs and things for, uh, for the um, H.G. Uh, Wells film, Things to Come. Yeah, uh, that that was a very influential idea of the future—the idea of this underground sort of utopian community—and um, and, and and writers probably picked up on those ideas. Does that mean that they should be in the science fiction hall of fame?
0: Maybe more than Ridley Scott. Um, well, I mean, it's a, it's a very good point. I mean, I mean, seriously, it is. Uh, I mean, did okay, did Ridley Scott have greater influence with Alien than H.R. Geiger had with Alien?
1: That's exactly the question I'm asking
0: and argue... Well, you know, that's a good... You know, I I don't know that he did. I'm just trying to think about it. I mean, because I watch Alien, it's the entire experience. When I see a book of Geiger's art, I find it very claustrophobic and whatever else. And there's no doubt, to my mind, it's that combination, I think, as I think about it, that um, had the enormous impact. So it had to be... I, I couldn't have seen... Geiger having impact without Scott, just as I couldn't see Scott having had the impact without Geiger. You know what I mean?
1: Well, yeah, it's it, it, it's it's a combination of visualized. I mean, Scott and um, Scott is a very good director of suspense yeah. films. I mean, he. But, but but if you look at the actual sequences of events, the great shock scenes, you could have done that uh, in any number of ways that didn't convey that claustrophobic atmosphere. Here's a good example. Of the, the, the you've seen a lot of H.P. Lovecraft films, I suppose we all have a couple. Well, they're pretty awful. Yeah, they are. uh, By and large. Some of them, there was one called Dagon, which is a Stuart Gordon film that I think comes close to that. But one of the issues is that I don't think anyone has created a kind of uh, complete visualization of Lovecraft's uh, way of looking at the world uh, the way, uh, let's say, uh, Mead uh, or, or Scott did for, for Blade Runner. Here's an interesting thing as a matter of fact. The one person who might be able to do this, there was a profile last week in the New Yorker magazine of Guillermo del Toro. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: And, and his life's ambition…
0: Is to is make At the Mountains out. of Madness.
1: Is to make At the Mountains of Madness. Which he's making. Which he's making, and which he's also an artist. He also sketches these things out. And based on his, based on uh, Pan's Labyrinth alone, uh, he probably is the person who could make the first real Lovecraft film that feels visually the way Lovecraft reads.
0: Of course, you realize that if he does, then the old ones, it it will create the harmonic resonance that will allow the old ones to enter our universe and destroy us all.
1: I hope so, because I've been been waiting for that since (laughs) I was a kid. I've been... I wonder how many. We can see if our listeners have done this. I wonder how many people at the age of twelve or thirteen, after I started reading Lovecraft, went to the local public library demanding to see a copy of the Necronomicon because <laughs> you, you know they had it and they're not allowed to show it to you because the professed Miskatonic university has embargoed it uh, in some way. Uh, there was, by the way, there was there was a silent film um, a few years ago. I think it was a film of The Call of Cthulhu done in the film of done in the style of a silent film of 1925. Okay. Yeah. It was spectacular. Really? It absolutely. Yes. It was brilliant. It was like 45 minutes long, maybe not that long. And it didn't uh, – first of all, it, it, it used this sort of flickering 1920s photographic technology. So even when you get a, a, a kind of glimpse of uh, uh, Cthulhu, it's it's just slightly out of focus, but very chilling. Yeah, And and not only that, but it followed the story. It did the voice, you know, mm-hmm. the narrative within the narrative, the manuscript found sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it, it conveyed that atmosphere, but that's not—that's never not ever going to be commercially successful. No. no. Um, but then again, you know, fifteen, twenty years ago, uh, nobody thought that anyone would ever make a film of Lord of the Rings.
0: No, no. And and you know, I, I think it's long since been proven now that almost well, okay, almost anything can be put on the screen, though you do get into mm. that strange circumstance. And I always think of the Narnia movies, you know, the most recent iteration of those. Mm. Uh, when I think about this, some things just don't work on film. And they never will because – I think you're right. Because they sit in your memory and they on your mind's eye and they make sense and you see them on, in front of you portrayed and they look implausible for some reason.
1: Or, or or, more often what happened to me with the Narnia movies is I thought something which was a very magical sort of space I had in my mind was suddenly reduced to something that looked like a lot of other movies. And yes. I thought that's, that's not it. Yes. Um,
0: well, plainly, I mean, the, the the extra bit of magic that the Lord of the Rings got was they were the first successful example, and so mm-hmm. everything else looks like an echo of it. Frankly,
1: which is which is ironic because the same thing happened with the novel. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Pretty much, and I mean, I, I guess that the thing that Guillermo del Toro has going to going for him with that, the Mountains of Madness is that that's a visual space that still remains essentially, at least for the broad community, undefined.
1: mm Hmm.
0: So he, if he does it successfully, then he, the, it will be his vision that um, is, is taken up, you know, at, you know, at large.
1: Well, and, and I, think, I think the fact that he's a visual artist himself, that he sure. design, he loves to design. I mean, he's he's, he's an overgrown kid. Apparently, yes. he's, he's he started drawing monsters when he was nine or ten years old, and he still does. He just yep. does it better now. Huh. Um, but and and the other thing he's got working for him is the fact that Lovecraft. Unlike, let's say, um, Tolkien. Tolkien had incredibly detailed, lush visual descriptions of everything. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and, and to some extent, those films realized they, they to, to many of us they matched what we what we had imagined already. Uh, Gollum, for example, is better than I thought Gollum would be. And I, I gather that Smog the Dragon is going to be something I'm
0: sure it will literally be utterly
1: spectacular when when we do the Hobbit. Lovecraft, on the other hand, tended to have uh, tended to use these absolutely meaningless adjectives, you know, indescribable, insurmountable, Chthonian, Sumerian <laughs> darkness. Followed by t- yeah. uh, my, my favorite line about uh, about um, Lovecraft was by Edmund Wilson, the American, uh, the great American modernist guru, uh, who wrote for the uh, New Yorker and the Nation back in the forties and fifties, and he had written. Uh, a number of columns demolishing Agatha Christie, for example. And um, at some point, he made some snarky remark about uh, horror fiction. And and August Durlith, uh immediately at that point, this is probably the mid-40s, I would say, mid to late 40s, Durlith was at that point in this evangelical stage about okay. uh, resurrecting Lovecraft. And, and so he said, here, I'm sending you a copy of The Outsider and others, I believe it was. Uh, and this will show you how... Brilliant horror fiction can be. That was a bad idea, <laughs> um, because and the, the the line he wrote was he, he also wrote a uh, Edmund also wrote an essay about uh, Tolkien attacking him for being an overblown children's writer, uh, but the line the line about Lovecraft which I love which I could almost quote from memory was that uh, surely one of the cardinal rules of writing horror fiction is that you do not use words like indescribable and unimaginable. <laughs> Especially if you're planning on producing an invisible whistling octopus.
0: <laughs> it is hard to fear the invisible whistling yes, octopus, yeah, right. isn't it? Right. <laughs> and i got to tell you that I am one of those people who... I missed Lovecraft. I just did. I, it was the wrong time in my life. I didn't read him when I was a teenager. And ever after, it just looks... Yeah. I'm curious about that,
1: though. So you did read him at some point after you'd more or less... I tempted
0: him. By the time I was 30, I think, I was when I first started trying to read him. I had some friends who were avid, avid readers of Lovecraft and would, uh, you know, uh, rave at me about how brilliant he was. And I would try and, you know, pick up a Lovecraft book. I bought a handful of them, and I would try, and it just, I don't think I ever, you know, it was only in the last 10 years I ever got to the end of a Lovecraft story, never mind formed any opinion on them.
1: Well, I had, uh, I had three stages of reading Lovecraft, and I, this is why I'm curious about your experience because I don't know how I would have reacted to him had I come to him after having read a lot of other things. Hmm. I read him when I was I read him when I was a kid, maybe he's 12 years old. I can yeah. remember exactly. I was in a drugstore. There was an Avon paperback, which was a reprint of The Lurking Fear. It's called it was titled cry horror explanation. <laughs> yeah. But it had the lurking fear and the call of Cthulhu. All, you know, a lot of the classic yeah, stories. Yeah. And, and I was just terrified. I thought, wow, this is, this is the coolest stuff I ever read. And then I didn't, And I, I, I bought some other Lovecraft. I read at the mountains of madness. I got, mm-hmm. uh, I, and and then I went through high school. I went through college, didn't come back to him for years. and, when I finally came back to him, I thought, "Oh my God, how could I ever have <laughs> told my friends to read this stuff?" And and I, I I found myself giggling at it. I found myself thinking, "This is this is this is exactly what everybody I, like your reaction must have been like. This is slu- sluggish, impenetrable prose. Yep. Uh, yep. You know, adjective after adjective after adjective, um, and then but then I didn't. Re- so I gave up on him again for a while. And the last time I came back, my third phase of Lovecraft reading was when Peter Straub did the um, Library of America, Tales of H.P. Lovecraft. And I reread them again, and I thought, I can see both now. I can can see how these stories are absolutely hypnotic to a prepared reader and absolutely execrable to a reader who's prepared in another way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, right now I couldn't tell you I – mean, if, if I were to read a Lovecraft story – I guess I think now I know how to get into a Lovecraft story. Okay. And it, it is more than suspension of disbelief. It is suspension of grammatical taste.
0: <laughs> okay. That's obviously a very useful skill when reading some science fiction and horror. It and certainly stuff. is. Right. <laughs> Uh, And yet there's still something there that makes it worth doing.
1: Well, there is. And one of the things that I think is fascinating about horror is that Lovecraft created a style of horror. And I I don't think there's any argument that he is the most influential horror writer of the 20th century, uh, for good or bad. And and some people who were influenced by him went on to become better writers than he did. But it seems to me – and I don't read a lot of horror these days. I I, I spent a period probably – well, I mean – For a long time, I I, I think I kind of lost interest when Splatterpunk just kept splattering and I thought, okay, all I was doing is splattering and uh, it wasn't interesting anymore. But but what struck me as interesting about the the Lovecraft school of horror, which is kind of overblown, overwritten, and I was absolutely in love with Clark Ashton Smith, who I still think is a better stylist than Lovecraft, But, um, but then the other side of the coin was what uh, uh, Stephen King and Peter Straub and to some extent Clive Barker, which were writing very clear, very literate prose with extreme precision, yep. um, and those novels work because not because the not not because of the use of 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 uh, of, of an over overbl- overblown language or uh, you know elaborately uh, uh, sort of um, oh the the adjectives. Yep. Uh, but the more precision you write, the more horrifying it becomes. Yeah. Um, and somebody mentioned um, – a couple of our friends have, have, have mentioned this. But I think it got uh, on some somebody's year's best list. I think it was on Jeff Vandermeer's year's best list. was Peter Straub's A Special Place, which is yeah. a novella t- taken out of um, – well, it was originally part of his novel A Dark Matter. And – It's interesting to read that without the complications of of plot. I mean one of the things that happens with reading Straub is you have multiple timelines, multiple viewpoints. They're very elegantly structured uh, and keeping track of that is part of the fun of reading it. But you'd simply take a single incident, an absolutely terrifying incident, and look at the prose in a special place because that's a concentrated piece of writing in a novella. Mm You realize that the the horror comes from the precision of the prose. It comes from the descriptions being utterly exact as to what's happening, and the parts that aren't described become more horrifying. That's that seems to me is a, is a modern style of horror writing that uh, mm-hmm. that Lovecraft really wouldn't recognize.
0: No, no. I mean, you can see his descendants most clearly, I think, uh, in you know Ligotti or Laird Baron or somebody, but. Mm-hmm. Um, that more modern style of horror probably only comes in in the, what, the, the 60s or 70s?
1: I think one of the things that changed it, I think one of the people you can see that changing in, in his career was Robert Bloch. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh,
1: because he began writing Lovecraftian horror fiction. Yeah. And uh, he, 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 he was he was pretty good at getting that hysterical tone in his, in his voice. But by the time he got around to writing things like Psycho or, or, or Firebug or some of the things he wrote in the '60s, Psycho being the most famous one, they're they're stripped down to the bare essentials of of, of writing and uh, are, are more effective because of
0: that. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. All uh, right, well, the joys of horror. What else are we going to talk well, about, Gary? Yeah. must have been something because we, we hit a spot. I should edit it out so no one will never know that we pause and draw to draw breath.
1: Well, well, we'll we'll never allow we'll never permit a long thoughtful pause in this podcast because God knows you <laughs> don't want to be caught being thoughtful. Uh, here's a question I yeah. have. Uh, a question I have about a book I do not have and have okay. not seen, but it, it was uh, Yezzy DeVries' anthology of optimistic science fiction.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Um and uh and I've, I've I've talked I I talked to Yezzy a long time ago when he was thinking about doing this and I haven't talked sure, to him since. Sure. Uh, I there's a conversation that goes back 15 years or so, and there were a group of British fans attacking Interzone oh, yeah, uh, yeah. for the same reason. You know, the, 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 the Interzone is this sort of drizzly, depressing, uh, fog-bound, poverty-stricken third-world version of, of, of the <laughs> England, England of tomorrow. And what's wrong with you people?
0: <laughs> well, for a start, come on, let's be fair. That was back in yeah, the mid-'80s and onwards, and they were probably still had a cold from having done um, – you know, the new wave. I mean that, that's probably all it was or – actually what it probably was if you think about it, the, the whole be, be interzone being drizzly and depressing is it was all Margaret Thatcher, frankly. Well, that,
1: that could very well be. I mean there there is an argument to be made that there is a Thatcherite period in British science fiction. Uh but the argument that was being made, one of the uh, one of the arguers was a very respected English fan named Peter Weston, mm-hmm. uh, who's a friend of Brian Aldiss's and uh, and and a fairly fairly influential figure in his own right, uh, and and he was uh, I was actually at a panel once where he he was attacking John Clute, who he believed to be part of the Interzone Mafia at the time, yeah. although Clute had long since left the magazine. But the argument was essentially the same. Science fiction ought to give us hope for the future. It ought to be a hopeful literature. It ought to be something that excites the kind of, um, I don't know, engineering or scientific or utopian or economic enthusiasm that it did in us when we were little kids. yeah uh, the, you know It ought to do for people today what Heinlein did for people uh, back in the 40s and 50s and 60s, and I don't know if I agree with that.
0: Uh... I, I got to say, right out, right out of the sort of you know the the cage, um, I'm not up for the ought, if you know what I mean. I don't okay. think science fiction has to do anything. I don't. I mean, it's just like I'm going to have a discussion about how science fiction predicts the future and how science fiction uh, you know deals with modern scientific thought and stuff. And parts of science fiction do. But it's not what science fiction as a whole is about. And there there are various flaws in the whole optimistic argument, which which have nothing to do with Yeti's uh, book. uh, Mm -hmm. Because it suggests that you can't look at a problem and have a dramatic conclusion and have that not be... Pessimistic. I mean, personally, what I think happens quite often when it comes to this whole question of, of pessimism versus, versus optimism in science fiction is misreading the, the work. Uh, yes. You know, I think that's the most common thing. It's, it's assuming that just because there is a dark outcome, it was a pessimistic story. Or because
1: there's a dark setting, as a pessimistic yes, story, yeah. I think. But part of the misreading is is reading science fiction as though it were nothing but futurism or nothing yes, but ideology. Yes. Yeah. And the the best recent example I can think of is is Paolo Bacigalupi's Shipbreaker. Sure. Because Paolo himself, as he once said, I don't know why anybody reads my fiction. If I read it, I'd kill myself. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and that goes back to his short fiction. Shipbreaker is very interesting, though, because it's as bleak a future as you get. It is the future of the wind-up girl and the calorie man and all those bleak scenarios. The story itself is not bleak. The story yeah. itself is a uh, kind of young adult adventure of uh, of, of rescuing your friend yeah. and yes. – and, and, and it's, 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 it's a very hopeful kind of thing because essentially once you get past the ideology – the book still argues that individuals can make a difference. Yes. Which yes. is essentially an heroic argument.
0: So tell me, is it the argument, and I was just thinking about this while you are talking, is it pessimism versus optimism, or is it a matter of tone, and is it bleary opposed to cheery? Is that what the real problem is? Because one of the things that you get when you ask deliberately for op- optimistic science fiction is you get Brady Bunch stories. Mm-hmm. You know, where people are willfully cheery. You know, like we're going to be cheery. Everything's going to turn out. If there's a problem, it won't be too dark, and we're certainly going to solve it very, very readily. You know, I think there's a
1: yeah. And I, I, again, I think that's. Yeah, I think you're right. Misreading is it's 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 a misreading of tone. It's a confusion of of tone and plot with ideology. If you take a story, okay, here's a very cheery story. Um, yeah. um, uh, the opening. There's a story by Robert Silverberg called "A Happy Day in 2381," which is becomes part of his novel the world inside Mm -hmm. and it's uh written in this sort of full uh jolly tone of how wonderful it is to live in these giant arcologies and uh, Mm -hmm. and be assigned to certain floors and the class system is completely defined according to what floor you live on and so forth and clearly the narrator of the story thinks this is just peachy you know the, the tone of the story is utterly happy and the happier the tone gets the more nightmarish the story becomes because you realize that this person doesn't recognize what kind of a world he's living in or worse that his attitude has been sho- so shaped by this world that he uh, he he fails to recognize it yeah so so what so, so what is in, in in tone an enormously cheerful kind of story actually now that i think about it david Marasek has done a couple of stories like this you know in context becomes a horror story
0: yeah yeah true yeah uh I got a question for you that relates to pessimism versus optimism, and it's going to make you roll your eyes, I think, Gary.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Are we facing the end of science fiction again? Yeah, sure. I mean, like every three months. Oh, <laughs> it's... I got a reason you... for saying that because I was reading. Oh, I was reading the news. I read the news today, oh, Gary, and mm-hmm. um, I oh, see boy. that. Oh, yeah, I see that borders are almost certainly going bankrupt. H.B. Mm-hmm. Um, Finn is, go- is going bankrupt. Probably going bankrupt, owing you know people who we know and love like Tor lots and lots and lots of money. Um, Bloomsbury's restructuring to protect their rights and have international rights instead of just sort of the uh, you know the Commonwealth U.S. split kind of thing. Um, these are not good days in many ways for the publishing business, the book selling business, um, and that surely affects our our colleagues in the field. And Why would that?
1: Why would that mark the end of science fiction more than it marks the end of books, or the end of literature, or the end of literacy? Or um, the, 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 the problem that comes up with this every time it comes up is, and you know, you, you just uh, posted the contents of Eclipse Four, sure. which looks—I'm excited about that. Oh, I haven't I read the like stories it. yet, but. Um, But the point is, there clearly are are, are very good stories being written and there are very good stories being read. Now, whether they're being marketed or sold or financed in the same way they have been for the last couple of hundred years, I don't know. I've I've got a friend who uh, has done a book on the uh, collapse of the newspaper industry, which is probably – essentially has already happened. I mean, essentially what we're seeing happening in the publishing industry is what happened two and three years ago with most of the major newspapers in the United States. Um, uh, there are strategies, for example, AOL, uh, the, the the ancient moribund company, has now decided to make itself a journalism. I know. They, bought the Huffington, they bought the Huffington Post. They've been hiring reporters laid off from the New York Times and the Chicago Tribune. Whether that works or not, I don't know. But it's an attempt at recognizing that the, the writing can still be done in, in, in a kind of different venue. Yeah. The other argument, which I made with my friend, and uh, the, only, the only reason I even knew what I was talking about was because of what he would told me. He was a senior reporter for the Chicago Tribune for decades. Uh, was that he told me about the history of, of journalism. Well, journalism, by and large, uh, was an elite kind of thing for decades, uh, for, yeah. for the hundred years after it was founded. A few people would read daily newspapers, uh, but most people wouldn't. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and in the 18, uh, as a matter of fact, one of the first newspapers in the United States, of course, was published by Benjamin Franklin. It wasn't poor Richard's Almanac. It was called the Gazette or something, I believe. And it was published whenever there was news to publish. Yeah. Uh, and eventually, newspapers began to realize... There isn't enough news. We're not going to make a living doing this, so we're going to put put it out every week or we're going to put it out every day, and we're going to find enough news to fill it. I think to some extent, the publishing industry did the same thing. Going back to the Jane Austen era, mm-hmm. uh, it was a fairly el- fairly small literate elite that sustained the publishing industry. There sure. probably were fewer writers and fewer publishers. We may be going back to a world in which people have to look have to seek out the fiction they want. Yeah, but if they seek it out uh, rather than having it presented to them uh, in, in a bookstore, they can still find it. Yeah. So, I, I, in other words, I think it's a mistake to conflate uh, the catastrophes happening to the book selling industry, which are real, uh, with with a catastrophe happening to fiction, which is completely. I do different.
0: agree. I do agree. I, I guess I was just sort of it, it struck me because of the link between optimism and pessimism we're talking about and it always it is it's always the other thing that always gets discussed you know sort of what is the future of our field why is it falling apart why are we all going to be out of a job in the next six weeks all that kind of thing even though it never ever happens or rarely happens you know
1: it rarely happens there have never been collapses in the past I mean we are talking about the number of you know 50 science fiction magazines being introduced uh, between 1950 and 1953 let me let me look in the back of my book here and see what was happening by um, by 19. 19- um, 1968, there were two new magazines introduced, Weird Book and Worlds of Fantasy, both of which are forgotten. Yep. This is after the collapse. In other words, the magazine the, the magazine industry utterly collapsed um, in the 50s, and to some extent, it was picked up by the paperback industry. Uh, to some extent, the paperback industry, the mass-market paperback industry, in some ways, has begun to collapse. Um, because their distribution markets aren't what they used to be. And some of that's being picked up by online venues. The problem is monetizing the online venues, which is always a
0: problem. Yeah, absolutely. It is definitely a problem. And there's things that I think we're beginning to get some kind of a hold on. It's happening bit by bit by bit. You see models being trialed, and I think eventually they will find a way of doing it. So.
1: Yeah. I saw somebody tweeted just today, and I didn't follow the link, so I don't know what the details, that at some place uh, a couple of independent bookstores have been buying up empty bookstores closed by chains, oh, okay. which would be interesting if that were to happen. I don't think that's going to be a long-term trend because the other piece of news I saw this week was that uh, the most – Absolutely fascinating bookstore in the United States is Powell's in Portland, Oregon, and they've lost, yeah. laid off something like 30 percent of their staff. Uh, they're suffering like every other bookstore is, um, and that that's going to happen. I mean, it's it's it, but but a collapse doesn't mean a disappearance. It means bookstores no, no. will become you know, it'll become much more like specialty stores.
0: Yeah, um, fair So tell me, but, okay, yeah. yeah.
1: No, I was just gonna say, do you know anybody who's actually quit writing because they read all this horrible news about bookstores?
0: No, they just get more, more annoyed. And they get
1: more annoyed, but they still manage to uh, – well, it's, it's harder to make well, a living as a writer. And
0: some, some of them publish a lot less in truth, I think. You have to mm. allow that that's true. We could both sit here, and I don't want to go through a depressing you know, sort of roll call of people who had more successful careers 10 or 20 years ago. But we could certainly name people who perhaps struggle more to get work out there in the field, which is unfortunate. Uh, people who would like to see more work from, but the field doesn't support it at this point.
1: Well, here's an argument that mm-hmm. uh, I don't know exactly what the economics of it would be, but one of the things that's happened because of the chain bookstores using their own Barnes and Noble and Borders using their own computer sales figures to determine how many copies to order of another book, books can determining these numbers. The chains, these these mega corporations, really have driven uh, authors' reputations now based completely on sales. Sure, sure. As if if the chains begin if the chains begin to collapse, is it possible that some authors who have become literally unmarketable because of sales figures, may become marketable again?
0: I don't know because it'll come down to how you're going to promote a writer to a big enough audience to be, to allow any model to survive, survive
1: mm-hmm.
0: when the broad channels of distribution begin to disappear. Mm-hmm. you know It's like the old argument that they make in the music industry right now that, that the last band of the size of U2 you'll ever see is probably U2. Because the you know, the the mechanisms that allow them to become as big as they are are falling apart, and you know, probably won't won't exist in the future, uh, or it'll be very very rare. Um, oh. So, how a midlist writer who perhaps, okay, let's take an example, right? Bradley Denton, mm-hmm. whose work I love and adore, and who I think is brilliant, and who has written mm-hmm. who's, who's going to write a story for me for Eclipse Five, um, Brad. Used to sell you know, a novel every year or two to St. Martin's Press. Did did reasonably well. I assume they kept going with it. I I mm. I, I think Gordon Van Gelder was the editor for those books, but don't don't quote me on that. It may not be true. Uh, and he may have supported that beyond what was commercially feasible a little bit. But anyway, but there's other than say a subterranean press who I think would publish a Brad Denton novel in a minute. There isn't mm-hmm. a large trade publisher who would necessarily pick him up and. There isn't a ready mecha- mechanism for someone to turn him into a well-enough-known name. Uh, so it then comes down to, for him, are there enough legacy readers from the period of time when there was a broad spectrum open to him to to make a career work? Uh, and that doesn't allow for him how to say how to say a Genevieve Valentine, who's a uh-huh. a youngish, I, mean, okay, I have no idea how old she is, a newish a newish writer who's putting out some very interesting work. How does she get from completely unknown to a stable career?
1: I don't know. That's an interesting question because uh, you're, when, you, when you talk about music groups, I mean one of the things they can do now, and, and more and more of them are doing, it, is, is build a following on something like YouTube. Yeah. Uh, if there were an e-book version of YouTube where people could just sample things, it might happen. I don't know. No, it with- uh, uh, probably not. No, uh, you're you? right. I, mean, I
0: don't think it would happen for a second. I mean, I'm being argumentative, but if let, let's say that you started um, – let, let's say you could, you could post the first paragraph of your story on Twitter and you could link to the rest of it, right? It mm. would be seen as more junk on Twitter in a way that music on YouTube is not seen, even though the truth of that is you only find the stuff on YouTube you're searching for by and large or that somebody else points you to, a friend.
1: I don't. I. I've never understood the mechanism of something going viral like that. But uh, in, in, in terms of Genevieve Valentine, I mean, this is one of the things where I think the online zines like Clark's World sure. can make a difference because I do think that. I, I do think it's possible now for a young writer to develop a following and a reputation, publishing completely in online venues. Yeah. Um. I. I. I by that I mean edited online venues. I think you're yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I don't. Yeah. I, I don't think you can just put your story out there on the web and expect people to come to it, uh, but uh, which goes back to the general argument uh, about uh, editorial taste, essentially, about the fact that, you know, if, if somebody uh, has a story that shows up in one of your year's best anthologies or Gardner's or, or, or Rich's or, uh, or, or Hartwell and Kramer's, that's going to call that person uh, to the attention of readers. I will tell you a good example of that. I read I, sure. I read Eros Agape. Philia, eros philia, agape whatever it is um (laughs) i I, it probably wasn't the first rachel swirsky story i read but it was certainly the one that made me think i want to read more stories by this writer yeah and all it takes is that one story it does and and then pretty soon you you begin to develop a reputation and and people are able to do that um it's not going to be no but uh, with short stories how many people ever made a living as a short story? Well, that's right? true.
0: That's true. So, not so, not so not something... very not very many ever have. And the the era when you could do it practically has almost disappeared. I mean, uh, I, Silverberg would 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 tell you about the 50s when you could do it if you wrote hard enough and fast enough, but not. Well, big, dur-
1: yeah. During during those five years, I mean, I mentioned three years but, uh, between 1950 and 1950. Sure. There were 50 new magazines. There were about 40 magazines already around by then. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and 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 Silverberg and Harlan and a handful of other people. Uh, uh, I don't know, Rog Phillips and so forth, um, could, um, could publish enough, could write enough to make a living doing that. But the amount of writing, I mean, you've, I'm sure you've talked to Bob about this as well. Sure, sure, sure. The, the amount of writing you have to do is astonishing by, by any sane standards.
0: Oh, yeah. Staggering um,
1: out. So that, 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 that world is gone. Uh, mm, and mm. Pro- probably just as well.
0: Um can I, can I say, you, you touched accidentally, incidentally, on a ho- on one of several hobby horses of mine. Oh. Well, okay. You said, regarding Rachel Swirsky's Erosphilia Agape. Thank you for that, telling me. <laughs> that it, <laughs> it was the point at which you realized there are more stories by this writer you wanted to read. Uh-huh. Okay? So that becomes an emblematic story. And if I were to... I, I get really wound up at times, and it tells you I'm a very strange, strange little man, right? About mm-hmm. people doing wrong books and books when they shouldn't be done, you know. It's like you can do a collection too early because the body of work doesn't exist. That's true. Uh, you can do it too soon after the preceding book because the the new body of work isn't quite prepared. Um, you know, uh, how how do you tell? How do you diagnose that it is now time? I mean, I've spoken here on the podcast before about why the best of Larry Niven was. A necessary book in the world because it corrected the wrongness. That was the really quite successful end space, which was not the right book and should never have existed. Right. My book was the right book. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> well, I had to do it to make it the right book. So there, uh. which uh, it was. Yeah. Thank you. Now um, I see it all the time. It's like, a good example of it being done the right way, right, Jeff Ford mm. is a great example. He does, mm-hmm. he comes out, he writes novels, wins World Fantasy Award, does some great short stories. The best of those short stories go into the first collection, the Fantasy Writer's Assistant. has a huge kind of impact, really. Everybody um, reads it. It gets nominated for awards. It's great. We have a pause. More work comes out. Out comes the second collection, which is a second major collection. But what you do mm-hmm. see is that in these days of profligate small presses um, and people maybe not thinking so well or being able, because it's because the barriers to production have come down and they 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 definitely have, mm-hmm. um, people put out books just because they have enough words not because they have a That's book.
1: That's abso- absolutely true, and it, it, it can do a damage to somebody's reputation. Now, my question is, do you have an example of that?
0: Well, I, yeah, I do. I've got countless examples, but I'm sitting here kind of loath to name them because, as my friend Ian Mond from The Writer and the critic says, we do watch our words here at a time, and I don't really want to hurt people's feelings. But I, I can look at books and say that book there was the wrong book. I can think of a writer who I think is very talented and that writer has had two collections out already and neither of them is the right book.
1: Well, and I can think of writers too. I have one in mind and you're right. It would be unkind to mention it, but he's he's a young writer. He's written some very good stories Uh, and he has a collection out and there are probably three of those very good stories in it. And then Essentially, everything else he published in the mm-hmm. short form is in the book. Yeah, sure. uh, and that's that's not the really uh, good way to begin. The other the other thing which is hard to parse without without also possibly hurting people's feelings is that there are writers who are so distinctive in their voice uh, that Margot – you can name them. You named one. Jeff Ford is one. Margot Lanigan is one. Sure. Kelly Link. Uh, Mary Rickert. Uh, where you think, okay, every story is completely unique. But then you yeah. have – most writers who write sure. some brilliant stories and some stories that they're able to place somewhere.
0: Yeah. Well, and, I, I can think of an example right now. Uh, I've been reading a lot of uh, Lavi Tidhar, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, just bought a story of his for something. And I think he's a, a, a very good writer. And occasionally he's a very, very good writer. Uh, but he also seems to be quite prolific. And he's someone mm-hmm. who… It's still too early for a collection. There isn't a collection yet, so that's why I can say it. It's still too early for a collection. There isn't that spine of wow stories to go into the book. Exactly. To make it all work. And you need the spine. It's like it took Andy Duncan a long time to get Balutha Hatchie together, and he had that spine of stories. Mm-hmm. Um, the worst thing you can do, and there is an, there is one exception to this, but the worst thing you can do is put together a collection, and there's no one story that is the story that makes you go wow. Right. Right. And and, 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 yeah, that's a mistake,
1: and it's utterly—it's—it's it's too possible to do that these
0: mm, days. Yeah, yeah,
1: um, uh, and, and and because there is a lot of pressure, and uh, the pressure comes from various. Uh, uh, counters In the mainstream, I know where it comes from. If, if you've got a job uh, teaching in an MFA program, you're expected to have a book out. You're not expected mm. to do research. Oh, yeah. you so, so you put whatever short stories you've got into a book and get it out from whatever tiny press it comes out from, and maybe you'll get a couple of reviews. And that's all it takes to get tenure. I I, I, I can go on about MFA programs at great length if we want to do a whole podcast on it.
0: Oh, i sure. But but, but, you, uh, but you can also see a you know, young writer five years into their career, uh, just got out of the, the, the really small magazines into the midsize magazines. Maybe showing up in some of the bigger antholo- you know, Better anthologies, better magazines, whatever else And someone comes along and says Gosh, you've got 90,000 words of stories That looks like a collection Exactly
1: yeah. And we don't really care that all the stories aren't Because you, some of those stories are filler and you can see this, especially with young writers, and especially young writers who are aware of the genre they're working in, aware of the markets mm. they're working in. That in each one of these collections, there are a couple of stories that are exercises, essentially. Yes, absolutely. I'm going to do I'm going to do a cold equation story, and here's my yep. version of that. I'm absolutely. going to do a robot story, and, and 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 so it's almost as though it's a portfolio of, uh, of of sketches that you you know present to an art editor to get a job. But they're not. You're right. They're not the stunning stories that no. the same writer could put. The one writer I have in mind, had he waited – and that's a heap, had he waited another five years, probably could have put together a collection that had some impact. He put out a collection that had some good stories in it but had almost no impact.
0: Now, uh, whilst I, I feel that exactly that way, the devil's advocate arg- argument, I guess, the counter argument comes to this. Um, who says it's time, first of all, but also mm-hmm. – um, Sort of, so what? I mean, so you did a book that's a little weaker. What do you lose by doing a book that's not the gosh-wow book that might have happened, right? Because you could have sat there and said quite rightly, yes, Jeff Ford did, say, three terrific collections in a row, um, mm. but what if he'd only done one in that period of time? It would have been astounding rather than just yeah. really, yeah. And And I guess part of the answer is you lose impact. I mean, I'm a great fan of the, the first big collection, and you look back into authors' careers and great short story writers – and whether it be Andy Duncan or Jeff Fordor, whether it's uh, Greg Egan, or whether it's uh, probably Harlan Ellison, or there's that first collection. A, a great example, a terrific example mm-hmm. is The Jaguar Hunter by Lucia Shepard, right? Yes, absolutely. The, along comes this first collection, and even though people were sort of aware of the stories, boom, there's the book, and you just go, wow. And it changes the way people think about you after that. Mm-hmm. I'm willing to bet that if Lucius was willing to sit down and talk about it, and if he remembers it clearly, both big ifs, in the period post the publication by Arkham House of the Jaguar Hunter in 86 or so, the number of invitations to be involved in, in writing projects increased, the likelihood of him being on awards ballots increased, the likelihood of him you know, being successful in the field all increased because there was just that word of mouth thing that followed on from it because people could see there was a really important, interesting talent at work. Well,
1: I think the problem with a the collection then is uh, the problem with a premature collection is that the impact of those two or three dynamite stories gets diluted mm. by realizing that uh, okay, that you remember this is a great story, and then you look at a collection and you still remember the great story, but you're thinking, okay, this is a less interesting writer than I thought of. Yeah, or, yes, maybe. Okay, I, I will I will name one name, and I hope I don't hurt his feelings because it's a writer I admire a great deal. I think David Marasek's first collection of stories was premature. Because too many of the stories were related to the essential world yeah. that became part of his his first novel, and uh, some of them were fascinating, but the stories that still just blew us away at the time—you know, we were out yeah. of our minds—Joy and the um, the wedding album and so forth—they uh, were there uh, and yeah. they should have been there, uh, but they were no more impressive there and and there was it's not like there were six other stories just like these yes that were just as as as, as dynamite as these yeah and and so you're still left at that point until his first novel came out counting heads which i was very impressed with uh you're 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 left with okay here's a guy who wrote some really brilliant stories and he put out a collection that had those really brilliant stories in it plus other stories yeah um there's uh, – th- th- that happens even with, with, with writers who have major reputations. I oh, mean sure. one, one of the other things that happens is you have a writer who has a moderately successful novel, and that becomes an excuse for a collection of short sure. stories. And it turns out the per- person may not be a very successful short story writer. Well, that's
0: true. Uh, I actually have another example uh, of someone where, by happenstance, all of the collections are out of phase, right? Mm-hmm. Charles Stross Oh, yes. Starts in the early... His career goes back to the mid-80s. I mean, he's a friend of mine. I love his work, and he knows I love his work. And we've even had this conversation a little bit, so it's not too bad, but... Mm. Starts in the mid-80s, has a pause, then you get a whole bunch of great stuff. Now, there are effectively three collections of stories, right? You've got Toast, which is scattered early work plus two two or three major stories. Mm -hmm. You've got Accelerando, which swallows a whole cycle of stories. Isn't really a novel. Um... But nonetheless, major, major short story work. Then you got wireless, which has a few bits and pieces, a couple of major stories. This, mm-hmm. none of those three books accurately completely represents how smart and capable and talented a short story writer Charlie actually is. There is another book, you know that would have done that, that would have omitted the early stories, which, I think by anybody's estimation, it would have been reasonable to allow it to disappear into into the past. And I think Charlie wouldn't disagree particularly at all. Bring in a smattering of the of the um, Accelerando stories and the later stories and give you one really compelling book.
1: I think that's true. And I think it's uh, – here's somebody else who had a, a strong reputation, a strong enough reputation to sell uh, multiple books of short stories really. Mm. Uh, and and that, that's, that's a temptation which I think – um it, it varies from one writer to the next sure. obviously but there are writers we know who just uh every, they love every story they've written yeah because they remember how much they love it when they wrote uh, well one example one classic historical example and you and i have talked about this although not in the podcast is harlan ellison yeah and his, his first several story collections uh would include every one of them I mean, the beast that shouted love at the heart of the world is it was mm-hmm. a collection of stories which That happens to be a brilliant story. There'd be two or three brilliant stories, but there were other stories in the collection that Harlan loved, that mm-hmm. basically nobody else remembered but Harlan. And, uh, and and then a few years later, and this is somebody whose career is exclusively short stories, and to some extent he's he's he very ingeniously figured out how to package these things in ways that made him successful as a book writer, as a, a, a collections of short stories. Yep. But essentially, there was no book um, and... Um, no, I think to this day there's no book that really is the best of Harlan Ellison. No, um, the Essential Ellison is is a terrible. Massive- I
0: hate it. <laughs> yeah. Bad book. Ooh, the Essential Ellison. Yeah. Anyway, continue.
1: It's what it's it's <laughs> it, it, it's the the to be honest, it's the Essential Ellison and a lot of
0: other stuff. It is. I mean, see, what do what they call it? The Eternal House Brick? Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> amongst many other things I've heard it called. You know what it is? It's the book that, it's one, one of the things, but it's the book that stops you publishing the best of Harlan Ellison.
1: I, I, it's to some extent it does, because uh, you have to be absolutely devoted to to read your way through It's a wonderful portrait of Ellison, I should say that. Yes, as a is. person, as a career, you know, as a kind of biographical uh, 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 display. It's, it, it, it's, wonderful. The closest Harlan came to putting together a thematically unified collection of mostly very good stories was probably Deathbird stories. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that, that may very well be his, uh, his, his legacy book as stories which, which are connected to each other, at least thematically. They're all good stories. They come from various stages in his career. Uh, they can be very powerful and, 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 and the book works as a book. Uh, whereas some of the earlier anthologies didn't, but, but, but there's a, there's always been a sense of Harlan and I've talked to him about this many times that, you know, he is a very emotional writer. Yes. He, he remembers with incredible detail what it felt like to finish even a story that he was finishing for super science fiction in 1957. Uh, and, 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 and he still has that love for it. And I have to admire that to some yeah. extent. Oh, sure. Sure. Uh, at, at the same time, you're thinking, well, people are not always reading your stories because they want to know every mm. corner of and Ellison's brain. Sometimes they're, they're looking at the fact that some stories are better than others. Yep. And uh, I, 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 I don't think that's a major issue anymore. I think it's been an issue with R.A. Lafferty, who we will probably be talking about at a future podcast, um, that so much of his stuff I came across. I was in the office today. And one of the uh, collections I came across was one that was done – I forgot who the press was, small press, but almost 20 years ago called Lafferty in Orbit. Yep. It was all all of his Orbit stories, Yes, which are really among his best stories.
0: Oh, yeah. They're, they are the ones that Damon Knight edited.
1: Absolutely. And it was an introduction by Damon Knight. Uh, and it's a terrific book. It's not a thick book. No. It's a terrific book. But there's this mass of Lafferty stuff out there. And if you or I or Neil Gaiman, who we know is another huge Lafferty fan, tries to tell people to go read Lafferty, well, we'll say, okay, you can read 900 Grandmothers, and then we'll name a half dozen stories. If you go out and look at Lafferty books that are around, you could end up with anything.
0: You could. Oh, you could. There you could is a very strange them. array of books out there, Gary. Yeah. So... Okay. Uh, but I will say, I do hope that somebody someday edits The Best of Harlan Ellison. I would like to see a uh, copy of that. Uh, the Best of Harlan Ellison
1: would be an enormously impressive book. I mean, one of the things, and Silverberg is the same way, and, and, yeah. and, and I think they both will admit this. I mean, I, I did a book on Harlan a few years ago, and for that book, I read something along the lines of 1,100 stories. Yeah. Uh, and that's what we're talking about. And, uh, and 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 some of these stories are absolute I mean, they're not only classics of science fiction, they're classics of the short story. Oh, absolutely. Uh, But not all 1,100 are.
0: No, no. And if I had the freedom, if if I were ever given the task, I would want to edit two books as companions. Harlan Ellison selected stories and Harlan Ellison selected essays and nonfiction.
1: Yes, I agree.
0: Uh, Uh, And I think that they would be books that would never go out of print. Quite rightly.
1: I think that's true uh, i think one of the one of the problems that people get later uh, later in their career is there is a sense of legacy and there is mm-hmm. a sense of 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 of, uh, of becoming icons of american literature almost prematurely and fans fans do this probably as much or worse than the authors themselves uh we will see sort of definitive editions of texts of uh, Edmund Hamilton, let's say, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. as though he were as though he were Nathaniel Hawthorne. Yeah. And yeah. he's not uh, <laughs> and, and, and re, because I've, I've, Hafner, Hafner does a lot of yes. these things. Uh, you do these co- complete uh, early pulp stories of Jack Williamson. And th- there's something absolutely fascinating for fans of Jack Williamson. If you've never heard of Jack Williamson and get hold of one of those books, you're going to think, OK, my friends are.
0: A little bit demented. Ah, <laughs> 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 uh, yes. But the science fiction field, which we love, is honestly just a little bit demented, isn't it?
1: <laughs> it is. And, 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 and I'm not saying that to criticize fans. No, I know.
0: Sc-
1: they, 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 they put stuff in print. They get stuff in libraries. They get stuff in a permanent forum that otherwise never would be there. And I think one of the most useful projects in science fiction publishing over the last few decades has been uh, NESFA. Yeah, because they have brought one thing after another
0: back in the print Brilliant. that
1: are terrific,
0: yes, absolutely yes, terrific yes. Yes. Guess what? We're out of time. We're out of time. We've used probably been. a little bit more than our time. It's good. No, it's good. Okay. We will. We'll come back. We'll talk next week. We will. We will exhort people to vote in the Locust poll. We'll, vote, yes. we'll exhort people to nominate for the Hugo Awards. If you're Australian, go nominate for the Ditmar Awards. They're open. There are all kinds of ways of being involved. And until then, until next time when the sun is up again or down in your case. In my case. I'll see you next week, Gary.
1: See you next week. Talk to you then. Bye-bye.